Welcome to episode 6 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. Today I'd like to start the episode with a shout out to a wonderful podcast called The Whispering Woods. The Whispering Woods is hosted by Sarah and her son Toby and delves into ghosts and folklore from across the globe. Here's their trailer. Hello and welcome to The Whispering Woods Podcast. I'm Sarah and this is my 12-year-old son, Toby. I've had that with sleep paralysis. What, a goblin? Nah, it's just a creature. Okay, but... <laughs> that was a bit of a bad stutter. Sometimes I want to hug him. Sometimes I want to scream at him. But mostly, I just want to scare him stupid. The legend of the Navajo skinwalker. Because that's the kind of mum I am. Join us every Sunday as I tell true tales of the paranormal in an attempt to terrify my youngest child. This type of being operates by an entirely different set of rules. Will it work? Subscribe and find out wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the sound of that, please look them up on your favourite podcasting platform. Today's first story is The Ghost of Glass and Sykes. On the 2nd of March 1653, the body of an unidentified person was found drowned in the River Skern, Darlington, within an area called Glassensykes. In the 17th and 18th century, Glassensykes was an area of partially enclosed marshy ground bounding the west bank of the Skern, fed by a small burn. It also held an open stell, which was a Scottish and North East English term for an enclosure for sheep or cattle. The area was wooded, apart from the stell and some parcels of land, and descriptions from the time suggest that the area was dank and murky. For reference, Glass and Sykes was the area now the A167 on the southwestern outskirts of Darlington, between South Park and Blackwell Grange. I'll put a link in the episode description on the main website for those that are interested. The finding of the body in 1653 appears to be the starting point for the local folk regarding the area as haunted. One of the characteristics of the humanoid sightings was that both the ghost of the white lady and also gentleman were both said to be headless, potentially immortalising the cause of the death in 1653 in story. However, like most of these tales, the sightings began to evolve, and by the late 18th century it developed into the story of a barguest. A barguest was said to be a form of goblin that acted as a harbinger of impending calamity, how long before midnight the day before a tragedy would occur. Described in 1886 as a local spirit or demon, Brocky suggested the name Bargest derived from the Danish bau, or bayer, which was the wooden frame used to carry the dead to their graves. In folklore, the most common shape of a Bargest was that of a black dog, the goblin also being referred to as a padfoot further to the west and south. By the mid-19th century, these stories had gathered a certain local notoriety, and were included by Longstaff in his 1854 The History and Antiquities of the Parish of Darlington. In it, he wrote, Headless gentlemen who disappeared in flame, headless ladies, white cats, white rabbits, white dogs, black dogs, shapes that walk at dead of night and clank their chains. In fact, all the characteristics of the northern barguest were seen to be in full perfection at Glaston Sykes. It is true that these awful visions occasionally resolve themselves into a pony, shackled in an adjoining field, or stamp as white dog, or a pair of sweethearts under the cold moon. But still, a vast amount of credible evidence exists about the fallen glories 
of the night roaming ghost of Glassensykes. The Glassensykes witnesses are not all thoughtless and superstitious men. An old gentleman of Darlington was, at the witching hour of midnight, returning from Oxenyfield. It was a bright moonlit night, and the glories of the firmament led him, as he says, to possess a more contemplative turn of mind than he had ever felt before or since. In such a frame he thought that if nothing was to be seen in the day, nothing could well haunt Glassing Sykes by night, and in firm faith, but without any wish to exercise an idle curiosity, he determined to look into it very narrowly, and satisfy himself as to the fallacy of the popular notion. Accordingly, when he came to the place where the road to Harewood Hill now turns off, he looked back and was greatly surprised to see a large animal's head popped through the stile at the commencement of the footpath, leading by the present woodside to Blackwell. Next came a body, lastly came a tail. Now my hero, having at first no idea that the unwelcome visitant was a ghost, was afraid that it would fly at him, for it bounced at the middle of the road and stared intently at him, whereupon he looked at it for some minutes, not knowing well what to do, and beginning to be somewhat amazed, for it was much larger than a Newfoundland dog, and unlike any dog he had ever seen, though well acquainted with all of the canine specimens in the neighbourhood. Moreover, it was as black as a hound of hell. He thought it best to win the affections of so savage a brute, so cracked his fingers invitingly at it and practised various other little arts for some time. The dog, however, was quite immovable, and stared ferociously, and as a near approach to it did not seem desirable, he turned his back and came to Darlington, as mystified about the reality of the Glassing Sykes ghost as ever. Of late years this harmless sprite has seemingly become disgusted with the increased traffic past its wonted dwelling, and has become a very well-behaved domestic creature. The stream, however, loves to make new ghosts, and by its stagnant nature does everything in its power to obtain them. Longstaff and others also describe other phenomena in the area, with will o' the wisps being seen, and occasionally the Blackwell Grange hedge would be engulfed in unearthly flames. There had also been sighting of a further headless man ghost by the Nordykes plantation at Blackwell, though Longstaff suggested he had not been seen for some years by 1854. Today's archive story looks at the little-known case of the Bronte Street haunting in Gateshead, told through articles in the Evening Chronicle. The first article is dated Tuesday 10th of December 1963 and reads, A service of blessing will be held in a Gateshead house tonight to evict an unwelcome poltergeist. The Reverend R. Race of St. James's Church, Gateshead, told the Evening Chronicle that he had his bishop's permission to hold the service in Mrs. Eva Coulthard's home in Bronte Street. Mrs. Coulthard, a 36-year-old widow with three children, refused to sleep in her house at night because of noises made by what she thinks is a ghost. Mr. Race said, I shall say prayers in every nook and cranny of the house. It will not be a service of exorcism. That will be the final resort if all else failed. Today, Mrs. Coulthard was having a meal with two of her children in the house. She has lived there for more than 11 years but she is at present being looked after by her next-door neighbours, Mr. Frank Hay and his wife. Mr. Hay said, My hair sometimes stands on end when I go into Mrs. Coulthard's house. The second article is dated six days after the first, on Monday 16th of December 1963. The Coulthards of Bronte Street, Gateshead, are listening for their poltergeist again. They have heard it twice since a clergyman blessed their house a week ago, 
but has been silent for the last four days. Mrs Eva Coulthard, the widowed mother of three children who lives there, last night said, We have heard it twice since Mr Race held the service, but it was fainter. There was only one knock instead of the usual two. We are all hoping that it is now finally gone after four days silence. I am trying to get used to moving around the house in the dark again, but everybody's nerves are still on edge, especially the children's. Since the service, Mrs Coulthard has received several letters with suggestions on how to get rid of the ghost. Many have been from religious sects and from people who have had similar experiences. The most concrete offer was from someone actually willing to accommodate Mrs Coulthard and her family. If it does start again like it was before the service, I won't stay here. I shall leave the house as soon as I can, she said. The final article is dated the following year on Saturday 4th of January 1964, so two months after the initial articles. The ghost of Bronte Street, Gateshead, thought of being banished at a service of blessing in the house, made a dramatic return to first foot its unwilling hostess. Mrs Eva Coulthard, who had not heard anything of the poltergeist since the Reverend Race of St James's Church held a service in her council home on December the 10th, was entertaining neighbours on New Year's Eve. Then on the stroke of midnight, the first footing ghost arrived. Slippers shot from the floor, knocking down Christmas decorations. Plates and cutlery crashed down and chairs moved. Mrs Eva Coulthard, who with her three children now refuses to live in the house, told the Evening Chronicle, When this trouble first started I was frightened. Now I am terrified. Things are getting worse. Neighbours who once chuckled at the ghost no longer find it funny. Many of them now had experience of the poltergeist, which is becoming more vicious with each incident. A man visiting the house to empty the television meter saw a chair move. While he was putting the meter back into the set, an ornament flew off the mantel shelf, narrowly missing his head. On another occasion, a milk bottle smashed against a door, and Mrs Coulthard's furniture is now showing many marks caused by the poltergeist. Chairs have been thrown against the sideboard, and a heavy fruit bowl splintered a fireplace tile. Said Mrs Coulthard, I am living away from the house now. I've asked the council for another, but they have told me there is nothing they can do. A lot of people have now seen what is happening, but no one can explain it. It seems intent on wrecking the house. Each day I throw more litter into the dustbin. There is nothing I can do. Today's third story again comes from the Evening Chronicle, which I found when I was researching the Coulthard case. This article dates to the 25th of February 1977 and reads A Tyneside couple talked today of the poltergeist which brought terror to their home. Their ordeal began when a toy donkey glided unaided down the stairs. Then a doll jumped from one shelf to another in the dining room of John and Lillian Price's terraced house in Ilfracombe Gardens, Whitley Bay. It was the start of two weeks of fear for the family, which only abated this week when a priest and Baptist minister carried out a ceremony at the house. In the two weeks, the poltergeist caused at least a dozen happenings. It was hell on earth. We were terrified. We slept in our clothes for a week because we didn't know what was going to happen next, said 57-year-old Mrs Price. Mr Price, aged 59, said, It was a terrible ordeal, but things seemed so quietened down since the priest blessed our home. The incidents included a piece of glass which moved four times in the bedroom and bathroom, a clothes horse which fell against a wardrobe and was later found on another wall of the landing, 
clothes emptied from dressing table drawers and were later replaced in other drawers. A shelf rack which fell bringing down a collection of dolls even though nails attaching it were left intact in the wall. An electric blanket was switched on, plugs kept being put in and a quilt and other bedding was moved about. But the most frightening occasion was when a heavy chest packed with blankets was thrown against a bedroom door locking the couple's grandson Robert in the room. Father John James of St Cuthbert's Roman Catholic Church, North Shields, visited the Price home after the disturbances. I comforted the family and blessed the house, he said today. In particular, I blessed the rooms where most of the disturbances happened, and I blessed the people in the house and said a few prayers. There was definitely something happening there, and the family were very upset, but I don't know what were the actual causes. When looking through my own archives for something a little different to add to this podcast, I found a small number of stories that had been submitted during an event recorded by me in 2010 at Dilson Castle near Corbridge. I'll include three of these stories now from John and Madeline Bell. Right, well it's John and Madeline Bell, we live in Newcastle, and we were having a, having a weekend away in Thalsby Hall in Yorkshire, um, I take two types of medication in white, bubble wrap white, <clears throat> and one of them I put uh, in red letters, I put L and B for lunch and breakfast. Uh, we, when we got to the room, the, the, one of the standard lamps was broken, so we reported it, and I left my, we unpacked, and I left my tablets under the lamp. <clears throat> when we got back from dinner, uh, the lamp had been repaired, and my tablets were missing. Well, they're quite important, so uh, we, my wife and I looked everywhere, under the beds, behind the cupboards, in the drawers, even we emptied a suitcase and my briefcase. They were, this particular packet with the red lettering on was nowhere to be seen. <clears throat> so I was thinking, well, I'll have to, in the morning, go down to the nearest town and try to get a pharmacist to give me some more. Woke up in the morning, went across to the table lamp where the tea stuff was laid out, and there were my pills back. Um, exactly where I'd left them, and they certainly hadn't been there the night before. I got talking to one of the cleaners in the hotel, and she said that uh, there, there were things like that happening. A little boy apparently had fallen off the roof at the front entrance and been killed, and she, it was believed by the staff that he was the one who came along and, and removed stuff and replaced it. Uh, that was it, really. But years later, we went back to Thorsby Hall, and we, <clears throat> we met a man there who'd, uh, who, who'd taken, he was a psychic who'd taken a job uh, as, a, as a night porter or night receptionist because of his uh, interest in the place. <clears throat> and he said that he was quite, uh, it was quite uh, common to have this sort of experience there, including he saw the, the spectre of the man who built the place and who was very loath to leave because he loved it so much. And this is going back many years to when I was a young girl of about 12 years old. We lived in an old Victorian house in London, Shepherd's Bush actually. And one night I'd gone to bed, I was just sort of laying quietly. I'm not quite sure whether I was fast asleep, but something woke me up, which I thought we had one of those old um, wardrobe cupboards in the old houses have in bedrooms and someone went to the 
cupboard and opened it and I remember calling out, is that you, Mummy? No answer. But I just drifted back and went back to sleep. But the funny thing about it is, uh, I wasn't frightened. I didn't say anything about it to my mother. But many years afterwards, I was nearly grown up, um, my mother told me that the lady that lived on the top floor of our house would never sleep in the back bedroom, where there was also one of those cupboards, when her husband was on night work, because she saw a little old man in a nightshirt go to the cupboard and frantically look for something, you know? And, and I thought, well, that's it. That must have been the little man looking for something. I was waiting, I was at school, finished at school, and I was waiting to go for national service. And uh, it was a very, very hot summer's night, and I'd written a letter to my parents who were abroad <coughs> working, and I, I couldn't sleep, it was very, very hot, so I thought I'd go to the village and post the letter. Uh, when I came out of the door, main door, and across grass that, uh, that led to the exit of the driveway, it suddenly went very, everything went very still and quiet and cold, and I heard a whispering uh, noise all around me. Well, there was a, there was a big lake uh, the other side of this grass stretch, and I, for some reason, thought it was maybe frogs were, had hatched and were hibernating. So rather than tread on them, I went back to my room. And I was talking to one of the uh, one of the school maids the next morning, and she said, "Oh no," she said, uh, "You've heard the ghost of Rupert's army that was retreating from Edge Hill, and they went through the grounds here on on their way." Well, I've done research and did find that General Waller's army had camped uh, on that uh, in that area, um, and she assured me that it, again this was quite often heard in the village, a place called Hanwell, um, not uncommon at all. So. Uh, that was my experience there. I'll finish this episode with a whimsical article which I found in the Kelso Chronicle dated March 1845. The Air Observer mentions that the inhabitants of Beth and the neighbouring parishes have been so thoroughly alarmed by a supposed ghost that two of them are still confined to bed. The ghost was captured on Saturday night and proved to be a stout young fellow in the prime of his life. Some doubts are entertained as to his sanity. Thank you for listening to episode 6. As per usual, more details on the Within the Boggart Wood project, including social media and Patreon links, can be found on the main website at theboggartwood.uk. If you'd like to send me any stories to read out on the podcast, links can be found on the main website, or stories can be sent directly to theboggartwood at gmail.com. I've also set up a Facebook group this week, simply entitled Within the Boggart Wood, so if anybody fancies joining and getting some discussions going, all are welcome. So until next time, have a good week and stay safe. <laughs>